0: House is a podcast from the House of Literature in Oslo, presenting adapted versions of lectures and conversations featuring international writers and thinkers. In this
1: episode, you can hear a conversation between the Indian writer Arundhati Roy and the director
0: of the National Library of Norway, Aslak Siramira, from when the Ministry of Utmost Happiness came out in Norwegian. The conversation took place on September 19th,
1: 2017.
0: much. It's a great pleasure to be here and to see all of you in here as well as in the other rooms.
1: We are going to talk about uh, this novel, The Ministry of Outmost Happiness. But talking about that, I don't think we can avoid talking about India, about politics, about social issues and a lot more. But I think I'll try to keep us in the novel through the conversation, because this novel is, as you saw from the film, it is a rich storytelling, but at the same time as it's storytelling, it's also a depiction of what is, of everything, as you say in, in the last ending of the film. But the first character we meet in the book is Anjum, or Aftab, a homophrodite, Becoming a transgender or transvestite, he blows off that idea of the word trans at all, but but he becomes a she. Uh, and he's, in many ways, also the character we get to know the best. I was wondering if you could start by telling us a bit about Anjum, who she is, and perhaps read a bit more from the beginning of your sure, novel. Sure,
0: sure. Well, Anjum uh, is born uh, as a boy, aftab. tab called Aftab to a Shia Muslim family in the old city of Delhi called Shah Jahanabad which is today it's a it's the wall city though the wall is broken in a lot of places and today given the rise of the Hindu right it's 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 always been a Muslim uh, space but now it's like a ghetto almost um, and aftab, is born as you say. I'll, I'll read about his birth actually and and the thing is that like many of the other characters in the book he has a, a border running through him mm. her I, I, in his case it's the border of gender mm. but it's not that he's uh, when when aftab is about 16 he he moves into a place that people call the Khwabga, which means the house of dreams, where he moves in with other people who are called in Urdu hijras, which is a word which means a body inside which a holy soul is trapped. And the hijra community is a community which obviously uh, uh, has existed as a community much before the language of Transgender and European rights based uh, you know, uh, society sort of began to overlap with the medieval and s- mm-hmm. feudal society that India is. So, so, one of the things I often say is India is a, is a country which lives in several centuries mm-hmm. simultaneously. But Anjum moves into the Khwabga, but she's not, uh, you know, this is not a sociology of the Hijra community, and she's not a symbol of. That in any way, she's a very unique person, just like each of the other people in the book. And in fact, uh, as you saw, you know, those those huge saffron um, saffron banded, saffron fag processions with swords and stuff. Now in India, that is the norm. And uh, in 2002, she travels to a state called Gujarat in the east of India, where she gets... Actually caught up in the 2002 massacre, which took place, where Modi, who's currently the prime minister, was the chief minister, and thousands of people were slaughtered openly on the modern metropolitan streets of Gujarat. Women were Muslim women were gang-raped and killed and burnt. And uh, Anjum actually gets caught up in it, not because she's a hijra, but because she's a Muslim. Mm-hmm. Escapes because she is a hijra and often people believe that to kill a hijra will bring them bad luck. Mm-hmm. So she thinks of herself as butcher's luck, as mm. a person who is alive because she brought good luck to the murderers. Mm. And when she returns to Delhi, she uh, she's broken, you know, by what she has experienced and seen and distraught, and isn't able to continue to live in the Khwabga with her companions and moves uh, into a graveyard close by, where she begins to live and gradually recover. And then there she begins to <coughs> enclose the graves of her relatives and build what is eventually the Jannat guest house. Mm-hmm. Jannat in Urdu means paradise. So it's a guest house in the graveyard where each room encloses a <coughs> friendly grave. And uh, you know. then the story goes from there. But I'll just read you... The part about Anjum's birth—it's—it's—it's it's, it's not the beginning of the book, just a little way in. Um, it's the chapter is called khwabga the House of Dreams. She was the fourth of five children, born on a cold January night by lamplight, power cut in Shah Jahanabad, the walled city of Delhi. Ahalam Baji, the midwife who delivered her and put her in her mother's arms, wrapped in two shawls, said, it's a boy. Given the circumstances, her error was understandable. A month into her first pregnancy, Jahara Begum and her husband decided that if their baby was a boy, they would name him Aftab. Their first three children were girls. They had been waiting for their aftab for six years. The night he was born was the happiest of Jahara Begum's life. The next morning when the sun was up and the room nice and warm, she unswaddled little aftab. She explored his tiny body, eyes, nose, head, neck, armpits, fingers, toes, with sated, unhurried delight. That was when she discovered nestling under his boy parts, a small, unformed, but undoubtedly girl part. Is it possible for a mother to be terrified of her own baby? Jahara Begum was. Her first reaction was to feel her heart constrict and her bones turn to ash. Her second reaction was to take another look to make sure she was not mistaken. Her third reaction was to recoil from what she had created while her bowels convulsed and a thin stream of shit ran down her legs. Her fourth reaction was to contemplate killing herself and her child. Her fifth reaction was to pick her baby up and hold him close while she fell through a crack between the world she knew and the worlds she did not know existed. There in the abyss, spinning through the darkness, Everything she had been sure of until then, every single thing, from the smallest to the biggest, ceased to make sense to her. In Urdu, the only language she knew, all things, not just living things, but all things, carpets, clothes, books, pens, musical instruments, had a gender. Everything was either masculine or feminine, man or woman, everything except her baby. Yes, of course she knew there was a word for those like him, hijra. Two words actually, hijra and kinnar. But two words do not make a language. Was it possible to live outside language? Naturally this question did not address itself to her in words or as a single lucid sentence. It addressed itself to her as a soundless embryonic Howl. Her sixth reaction was to clean herself up and resolve to tell nobody for the moment, not even her husband. Her seventh reaction was to lie down next to Aftab and rest like the God of the Christians did after he had made heaven and earth, except that in his case he rested after making sense of the world he had created, whereas Jahara Begum rested after what she created, had scrambled her sense of the world. Thank you.
1: The first part of the ministry is uh, describing uh, Anjum's or Aftab's life to become Anjum and his and hers uh, access into the uh, society of Hijra's. Uh, and you said that in in your first answer that, that there is a, a tradition that is much older than the language for for transgender issues in the West uh, for hijras. What are the positions of the because to me it seems you describe a society that exists all over India, at least all over Delhi, in almost feudal in its uh, uh, construction. What is this? Is, has it been there forever? And has it been so, accepted? Uh, has it? Be, or, it's a
0: there's a system of what they call gharanas, which is also the way classical music works in India. You have gharanas, which are ghar means house, mm. like households. So a kind of tradition, you know, uh, mm. a particular tradition of classical music comes from a particular kind of lineage. But in this community, obviously, it's not hereditary. But people find their Gharanas, and each household has an ustad or a guru and then a group of them has a higher guru and then there's a supreme mm. guru and traditionally each city would be, let's say, divided into territories. So they would actually patrol those territories and in the book, uh, one of Anjum's comrades de- de- describes you know, how she says we are happiness hunters because whenever there's a birth or a marriage... A, a, a group of hijrahs will go and they will perform, and sometimes people don't like it, but you know they 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 pay them they give them money uh Of course, all that is changing now with this new thing but uh it's it's interesting that in a feudal society that meets a new lang- a society with a new language, which is more progressive in which area is hard to say,
2: mm-hmm.
0: for example. The first Mughal emperor who came to India, Babur, famously wrote his memoirs, which are known as the Babur Nama, in which he talks quite openly about homosexuality. Mm. Whereas last year, the Supreme Court of India criminalized it. Mm. You know, whereas uh, whereas, uh, legally, recently, a provision has been made for uh, 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 you know another gender as opposed to just male and females so it 's complicated, but as i said you know i don't uh, even even the story of anjum it it isn't really about just that you know it 's about the gradual ways in which and then the, the then how it picks up pace to the the majoritarian impulse. The Hinduization, mm. the violence, mm. the emergence—you know—so it's, it, it's, it's how uh, for me writing the Ministry of Utmost Happiness was that uh, the challenge was that I don't accept the idea that you know uh, novels should just be about interiority and uh, the very intimate nature of the characters that you pick up, maybe against a political background. So to me. Uh, like you said, it was how do you write about everything you mm. know because the air is not departmentalized, you know like academic institutions mm. it 's not ngoized it 's mm. not that you can have a uh, in the air we breathe is issues of caste of gender of kashmir of love of intimacy of of uh, what is global capital doing to this Society' that's changing so fast almost by the week. you know how, mm. how is that affecting everything how, uh, so So to me, even inside the novel there's no departments mm-hmm. <laughs> no,
1: but it, it is and it's also very true of the feeling when you read the Ministry of utmost Happiness, that there is no department de- no definitions <laughs> even uh, but but you have for the f- beginning of the book a main character that many ways lives in the area where the Phoenicians go to die, uh, between gender and between societies. And Anjum, in, in her early life as a hijra, she is also very popular with the Western press. She yeah. has a, a, a book of, of uh, her own, clippis where she is in, in, in international media. And she becomes some kind of...
0: Ex- An exotic <coughs> sort of must-do story for all foreign correspondents yes. <laughs> before they leave, along with the bandit queen and the bird hospital and the begum who lives in the forest and claims to have inherited the kingdom of Awad or ought to be inheriting the kingdom of Yeah, so so the thing is that, I mean, really, it is it is an experiment against domestication. Mm. you know, this book. Like, I I sometimes think, imagine if I had had to write a proposal and give it to a publisher for an advance to describe what the Ministry of (laughs) Utmost Happiness was about. It would have been impossible, you know. Mm. It would have just... Or I could not, once I had written a proposal, I could not have written this book Mm. because it had its own energy and the characters (laughs) had their own... You know, way of moving through life and moving through stories, and and it was an experiment, you know. So I I did want to be able to write it, and if I thought I hadn't done what I wanted to do, I I would have not published it, you know. But I wanted to try how really um, the idea for me was: could I? Could I look at storytelling like you look at how great cities are planned? Mm -hmm. Maybe it starts off with an old settlement, you Mm -hmm. know, and then it starts circling out and and you plan it and then people ambush that plan and unauthorized colonies come up and, you know, uh, migrations happen. Then you plan it again and then again the unexpected happens and yet a city will always have a form that inscribes itself against the contours of nature always mm. it mm. will have a form mm. and always the chaos will be ordered too in some ways and you know so it's a process of control and letting it go and control and 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 a, and a map of streets big streets little streets courtyards and you can't know it by driving down the main road you can't know it unless you walk through and you stop next to the smallest guy or woman and smoke a cigarette and say hello and how's it going and where did you come from and however you can't consume it like an easy thing Mm. you know so that was my attempt
1: and and in the first if we try to see the novel as this city developing uh, Anjum uh, starts in old delhi uh, and as you said and, and also described here in the imagery in the in the film uh, she experiences something really extreme in many sense the gujarat uh, exodus of muslims which is is perhaps the most symbolic event the
0: massacre i mean the
1: Ma- the uh, Massacre of yeah. Muslims. Yeah. Uh, uh, and as you also say, yeah. she is protected from this by the fact that she is hijrah. Uh, so it's bad luck to kill her. And she comes home with this mark and builds her, her life on in the cemetery, tree, as yeah. you said. Yeah. But just before we, the novel turns around to the other characters, something happens uh, in India where she is entwined into it, which is called the the second freedom movement of India or or something like that as a large hunger strike led by somebody who you call the the old baby. uh, (laughs) Old man baby. (laughs) Old man baby. uh, 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 Old Gandhist bureaucrat that that becomes the vocal point for uh, (laughs) anti-bureaucracy movement. And you describe almost as a theater or carnival or a big scene where all the new activists gather around this old man baby uh, who is opposing uh, India's corruption, India's bureaucracy. And at the same time, all the other activists are at the same site, the uh, Bhopal activists, the activists uh, for women's liberation, the activists for the, for the Adivisi in, in the south and all this. And this scenery uh, you create here, uh, Anjum comes into as a stranger. How does she see this?
0: Actually, uh, you know, when, when I started writing the Ministry of Outmost Happiness, it was obviously, I had been uh, traveling uh, after the God of Small Things. I had been traveling through these landscapes, writing, arguing, fighting, getting into trouble, all of that, very much immersed in, in these battles. And there's a place in Delhi called Jantar Mantar where uh, a lot of people, dreamers, political activists, social movements, uh, you know, Gandhians, nut jobs, all all there. And, uh, you know, I've spent many, many hours there and nights there sometimes. And in fact, I was there one night when um, a baby appeared. Like an abandoned baby appeared, and suddenly all these movements and people full of political wisdom and people full of perspective and understanding and radical politics just didn 't know what to do with this baby <laughs> you know what what do you do and uh, i, I, I it, it affected me, and I thought even i didn 't know obviously what to do with the baby and so um, I thought about it a lot, you know, and actually. Although that scenario is, uh, you know, somewhere towards the middle of the book, it's the nerve center mm-hmm. of the book. Mm. And, and there's, you know, the, the Kashmiri mothers of the disappeared, 10,000 people disappeared in the war in Kashmir, also there in Jantar Mantar, And suddenly they, the mothers of the disappeared don't know what to do with the baby that has appeared. You know? Mm. And Anjum is there. Uh, for for reasons where, I mean, that is also described in the book, Mm -hmm. how she, post the Gujarat massacre, becomes someone who's fascinated by trying to understand the political situation. And she has adopted a little girl and is very, very protective of her and therefore struggling to understand how to protect her. Mm -hmm. And so she's constantly wanting to, what she says, help the poor and her co-hijras say, but which poors would want to be helped by us, you know, because they're so scared of us and so on. And so she's there. And and she just says, but how can you call the police? Because everyone decides to call the police to give the baby over. Of all and, things. And, yeah, and she says, give the baby to me, mm. you know. And um, yes, this whole, uh, you know, I mean, I'm sure all of you are familiar with the idea of movements in many places which are against corruption. This happened a, a few years ago in India. And everybody, it was, it was sort of, build as the Second Freedom Movement or the Arab Spring and I was terrified by it, frankly, because you know I in fact tried to argue for corruption at that point. <laughs> <laughs> because I said, look, we are a country that in which most people are technically illegal, all the squatters, all the slum dwellers all the hawkers on the streets everybody pays the police a little bit and manages to get by mm. and this movement which was just being backed by the middle class mm. you could see the fascism coming in you know mm. and then the hindu right just dived in there you know and 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 really brought this new government to power on the wings of this on the oiled wheels of this anti-corruption movement. So all this theater was taking place, it takes place in this book and when this baby appears and Mm. then uh, many, 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 you know, it's the nerve center of the story in many ways that Mm. leads you to other characters and other places.
1: I agree, it is the nerve center uh, in many ways because there's two things happening here. One thing is the baby appearing uh, and the baby links Anjum to uh, the other characters who we meet in the, in the rest of the book and we'll talk about them. But also, somehow, in this scenery, at least for me as a writer, a uh, reader, you, you outline the political activism of decades in India and create a scene of it where I have the feeling... Uh, that instead of being uh, agitating for one or each of them, you describe in a way where I can both laugh, envy, and support all of them in different ways of how you see it, except the big, the old man baby and his new activism, which is backed by the middle class, by the media, by the politicians, and becomes like the attacking point for, for the right wing hindus it's a really interesting scene which i had to read again and again and I, if you haven't read it yet do many times <laughs> because if there was a book that was called how to write about politics this scene would be the example but 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 at that point anjum wants the baby for herself because uh, her other baby has she feels abandoned her uh, for another hijra as a yeah. mother and Uh, But she doesn't get it. Instead, three other characters appear. Tilo, the uh, woman that is, at that time we don't know, but gets the baby, and her three lovers, or the three men in love love with her. Yeah. Uh, Garson Hobart, Naga, and Musa. Uh, And they, through this, we are moved into another part of the novel where uh, we move to Kashmir. We move to this triangle of people. And you choose a teller for that part of the story, which you call Garson Hobart, a drunk civil servant working for the secret agencies of the Indian state. A very unlikely Arundhati Roy character <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> in many ways. How did that happen?
0: Well, uh, yeah. So, so, the, so basically, when um, when uh, the the police are called and there's all this chaos and uh, when it's finally settled <clears throat> the baby has disappeared and she's been taken by by one of the other major characters in the book her name is S Tilotuma, called Thilo and she lives as a tenant in 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 a small second floor apartment and and the landlord is an old college mate of hers Garson Hobart and uh, Garson Hobart is an intelligence officer, and when he first appeared in the book and started uh, telling his own story in the first person, I was shocked. <laughs> and I was like, you, you can't do this. This isn't allowed, you know. Haven't you read the rules about how novels are written? And you can't just, can Sunny, start uh, speaking in the first person in the middle of a book. And uh, he said, Well, that's how it's going to be, you know. And, and I kind of tried to figure out why is this happening. And then I realized that, see, Garson Hobart is also a trans person. Mm-hmm. So half of him is the voice of the Indian state, mm-hmm. who is above me as a writer, you know. And he's going to speak in his own voice. And half of him is the thwarted, drunken lover. Mm-hmm. And he has... Uh, I don't know uh, in Hindi, the word is "taav, you know, which means that ability to wait, the gravity and the ability to wait, which the state has. you know He sees things that other people see, but he doesn't react like a human being. you know he puts it into perspective, he gives you the other side, he, you know he's, and a very, very intelligent person. and even about himself. <laughs> He doesn't react like a human being. He's he's got a very clear-eyed view of himself and he begins to in fact he arrives in the apart his tenant's apartment and the tenant is missing and if, and and he he realizes there's something very dangerous in what is there in the apartment, in the things, in the documents, in the objects and and he slowly begins to tell the story of of uh, how he first met her and what happened in Kashmir. And so you really move from from this graveyard in Delhi which has the Janath guesthouse, the paradise guesthouse built on it, to the valley of Kashmir which many people call Janath because it's so beautiful, Uh, a valley called paradise which is covered with graveyards now. Mm. Uh, tombstones grow out of the ground like young children's teeth you know and uh, and, 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 and then the stories of course uh, come together but they are the idea of the Ministry of utmost Happiness is really that in some ways in a major way of course Garson Hobart tells the story of himself and the state story of how it sees this conflict but in many other ways, other characters too, like uh, uh, Dr. Azad Bhartia mm-hmm. and Musa and Tilotma in some ways and others also, there's a way in which they begin to speak in first person too. Mm-hmm. So there's a coalition of voices.
1: There is the... the, the the collision of voices and the patchwork of of different stories, of different perspectives of poetry, which use a lot uh, letters, uh, communication. Tilottama also recalls the story of Naga, her second husband, or first husband but second lover, recalls the story of her relations to her mother uh, and have the stenographic notes from her mother who has become... Pretty crazy uh, on her, her her last days, and there's a, there's a lot of that that makes up the story. But but still, for the second part, a lot of this happens in Kashmir, and you're talking about that both Garson Hobart is trans because he's partly the Indian state, partly a human being uh, of different kinds, and uh, Anjum is is trans as we know, but also Kashmir. Is trans.
0: In fact, too, Musa, who's Tilothma's, you know, true love in a way, he has a national border running through him. Tilothma has a parentage which is... Uh, her, she doesn't know who her father is, but she... I mean, it's, it's the rumor in the little town she grew up in is that she, her father was a Dalit from the untouchable caste. And in my mind, she was really... The daughter of Amu and Velita from The God of Small Things had that story and it mm. differently, you know. And then you have the, the person you saw um, on the horse in Saddam. the film. Saddam, Saddam Hussein. Hussein. So Saddam Hussein is actually a, a, a man who comes from a caste called the Chamars. Again, untouchable. Chamars are leather workers. And he uh, watches his fa i mean their job is actually they're called by upper caste hindu farmers who basically who, who who say that cows are divine and are mother and all that but when the cow dies they will not touch the carcass because it will it's impure so they call the chamars to pick up the carcass and in fact while he's transporting the carcass along with his father and five other men a mob, uh, the police stop them and ask them for money. And when, when it's not enough, what they pay, they call in the mob. And he watches his father being beaten to death. And he decides that he wants to... And this is a... I mean, this is a, to say this is a true incident is a minor. It's one of hundreds of true incidents. Mm. And uh, he decides to convert to Islam. So he calls himself Saddam Hussein, and he becomes a friend of Anjum's. And on his cell phone, he has a video of the execution of Saddam Hussein. And he says, you know, he's very impressed by how bravely Saddam went to his death. Hmm. And Anjum, who's a Shia, says, you know, but Saddam was a murderer. He was a bastard. He says, yeah, I know, but I want to be a bastard like him like i want to do some, what i do and then i want to die with this but he's a very uh, i mean eventually he's, he's a, not
1: much of a bastard he's, he's not
0: he's, he's a, one of the
1: kindest persons yes, in the book yes, actually
0: he is. and he's a he's a man who collects around him all the animals in the city the horses the dogs the turtles the parakeets you know mm. he's, he's 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 a zookeeper in some some way a zoo without bars but so somehow, um, people you know, people who are not from India do think of India as this, you know, friendly, anarchy, Bollywoodi, yoga, Gandhi, Hindu, spiritual place. Mm-hmm. But it's not right. Also and, beaches. Uh, huh?
1: Also beaches.
0: Beaches, but actually, the anarchy is only in the traffic. The society is rigid. Mm. And you do not marry outside your caste. You do mm. not marry outside your religion. Mm. Less than 5% of people do. Mm. And in the Ministry of Utmost Happiness, you have people who are just born with these borders through them. Mm. And so they don't fit in the grid. You mm. know. So in a way, if the God of Small Things was about a family with a broken heart at its center... The ministry of utmost happiness is about people without families, with shattered hearts, mm. who somehow bring those pieces together and make a mended heart mm. in a graveyard. Mm. And they, um, yeah. So it's 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 a it's it's a it's it's a way in and in the graveyard they blur the lines between the living and the dead, between humans and animals. Between men and women, Mm. they, they, without it being a manifesto of any kind, but ultimately, (coughs) if you look at who are those, who are the people that end up living and being buried in the graveyard, Mm. it's a kind of revolution.
1: It is, and because they in this graveyard, they also bury. Uh, not only the people who die, but the people who have died, or the people they have as ancestors. Uh, the father of Saddam Hussein, the man who was beaten to death because mostly because they wanted to beat somebody to death. That was No,
0: mostly because he was a Dalit. He was a Dalit and, and he uh, was
1: and he was untouchable under the, he, yeah. and and this yes. But they go into towards the end of a book to the shopping mall in a Mercedes was, Benz. In a Mercedes <laughs> Benz to see the outside world and find right. the stores that have been built upon the place where he was killed. And they buy a shirt in one of the stores and they bury bury that shirt in the graveyard to give him a home. And they they that You say some people are are killed twice. Some people are buried twice in the book. But but there's also a large portion of it that. Before Tila, and we can't tell all the story. Tilo before she gets to the graveyard and becomes part of this community, uh, she's in Kashmir. And Musa, her her first love, loses his family in Kashmir, his his wife and his child, Miss Jebin the first, who is this here, and becomes one of the freedom fighters, one of the many freedom fighters in Kashmir, and. And we spent quite a lot of time in Kashmir. Uh, and could you tell me why is Kashmir so extremely important to the Indian state?
0: Well, Kashmir. You know, uh, today, this year, the Indian um, India is celebrating its 70th anniversary of independence. So as probably many of you know that um independence came with what is called partition mm-hmm. where where India and Pakistan were partitioned and there was Pakistan and West Pakistan East Pakistan and, and India and then East Pakistan became <coughs> Bangladesh mm-hmm. so three countries and I often uh, you know people have asked me this year will you write something about partition and I said to them, I said, what does this word mean? Mm -hmm. Because it suggests that there was a hole, Mm
2: -hmm.
0: and then it was partitioned, and there was a great deal of violence around the partition. But we tend to forget that there was an equal amount of violence over assimilation, because there wasn't a hole. Mm -hmm. There was, first the map of India as a country was drawn by the British which included Pakistan and all of that. But inside those boundaries, there were independent kingdoms. And they were forced to choose whether they wanted to be with India or Pakistan. And Kashmir was on the border and therefore is often called the unfinished business of Pakistan because it had a Hindu king against whom its own subjects had been agitating for a long time. And then that king, who was really not somebody who who had a legitimate uh, right to decide on behalf of his people, decided to accede to India based on certain conditions. But since the 1990s, the, I mean, since the 1940s, there's been a struggle for independence. And in the 1990s, it became an armed struggle. Mm. But in, when, when we call India a democracy, we forget that since 1947, there's not been a single day when the Indian army has not been deployed against quote unquote its own people, not a single day. But, uh, Nagaland, Mizoram, Assam, Punjab, Kashmir—it goes on. So the war in Kashmir. Uh, well, the, uh, in 1990, people, after several, um, you know, several attempts to have a political solution, eventually young men took to arms hmm. pakistan supported the militants and uh, since the 1990s the valley of kashmir is now the most dense dense military occupation in the world it has more than half a million soldiers 68 to 70,000 dead unmarked graves disappeared people thousands of people young men tortured Last year and the year before, they were firing pellet guns straight into the eyes of young people. So hospitals full of blind young men. And yet the noise of Indian democracy hides all of this. And if anyone says, I mean the only thing as an Indian you're allowed to say is Kashmir is an integral part of India. If you say, as I once did quite casually, that, but it was never an integral part of India, then you are charged with sedition, whatever. And uh, right now, the whole thing is at fever pitch, you know, uh, because that's also a way of winding up Hindu nationalism, you know, Mm. so the talk of terrorism and Muslim terrorists and all of that, which was given a lot of oxygen by 9-11. Though the history there is a totally different one, mm. you know. So, uh, so it's a, it's a it's it's one of those ignition switches, you know, mm. where you you're just not allowed to talk about anything that happens there unless it's to celebrate it, unless it's to celebrate the violence. Mm. And coming back to literature, you know, mm. the thing is that how do you, I mean, all of us in some ways are part of various kinds of oppressions or being oppressed and colonial histories and so on. But My point is, how do you, how do you look at that? For, for me, truthfully, I actually haven't written that much about Kashmir. Hmm. I have said things very clearly because I know that the only way to tell the truth about Kashmir Is fiction
2: Mm.
0: because you cannot tell the truth about murders and uh, you know, an occupation just with statistics about how many died, Mm. how many um, were tortured, and how you know, you what happens to the air in a place that has and to a people that have lived under such a dense military occupation for so many years who are the collaborators, who are the soldiers, what are their stories, Mm. what are the deals that are being made, what happens, uh, you know, how do you look at it through all these various windows? Mm. Only fiction can do that. Only fiction can do that, you know? And that's why, to me, literature is such a, I mean, fiction is such a a wonderful thing because unlike what people keep trying to say, that... Oh, is it real or is it fiction? To me, fiction is truth. Mm. You know? And not because it's factually true, mm. but because it's musically true. Mm. Because you tell a story and you know it's true, not because of its facts, because, but because of its timber. Mm. Because you know the note it hits and you can hear it and you know it's true. You know, So there's a quote from Baldwin here which says, mm-hmm. uh, there's a quote from Baldwin which says, uh, at the beginning of one of the chapters, which says, and they would not believe me precisely because they knew that what I was saying was true, you know.
1: It's a wonderful quote, so yeah. it's in my notes, I wanted to ask you about that, but, but talking, since you're not talking about how to write about the truth and non-truth, in, in Norway and parts of European-American writing, we have a large ongoing debate about what is called reality literature, where you write fiction but one can recognise family life, characters in the private sense. Uh, uh, and we're not going to do that. That's too much of it already. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but uh, reading the Ministry of Utmost Happiness, I found myself a lot on the internet while reading, uh, particularly the second time, because I tried to understand the backdrop and what is actual happenings as opposed to fictional happenings. Not true or untrue, but what happened. And what I realize is that a lot of your characters, even in this book, are recognisable characters from contemporary Indian politics. The Prime Minister of Modi, he's here, Lala. Oh, I didn't say that. Uh, <laughs> no, no. <laughs> what seems to be very... Well, I, I would claim he was here, yes. Uh, uh, and, and also uh, uh, the, the 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 old... A fat baby, Uh, he has a name, Anna Hazar, uh, or there's someone who looks like him. uh,
0: Look at uh, them, don't look at me.
1: (laughs) Out there on the internet, there's somebody who looks like him and and was present. Uh, And even even, uh, one of the many butchers of Kashmir, and a quite important figure in the book, uh, Avrit uh, Singh, who is the adversary of both Garson Hobart, Musa, and, and Tilo uh, in many ways in, in this book? Ends his life in exile as a refugee in the US, uh, killing himself, his, his wife, and his children. And uh, has been, she didn't say that, but there has been an uh, uh, officer of the military uh, of, the, of India who was known as the butcher of of Kashmir, who killed himself in exile in, U- in the US in, in the same surroundings. I don't want you to comment on any of these specifics, but but when you write like this, uh, do you deliberately think about, this is political, this has happened, this is there, this is there, or is it just a part of your writing, the way you breathe and live and write?
0: Well, it's a very interesting process, I think, you know, because if you if you were to write uh, about uh, Kashmir, let's say, or even the political scenario, or the battering to death of Saddam's father, or the Gujarat massacre, if they were not real, then it would be um, it would be a very odd thing to do. To if if the texture so if you're a if you're a tree whose tap roots are very deep. And you know the reality you're not you can't be making up those things you mm-hmm. know because then you would be falsifying uh, a a claim I mean if i was to say that uh, say there were the, say there were no military occupation mm-hmm. in kashmir and okay then you can make a different kind of book you know mm-hmm. but for me the, com- the, the the closeness with which you understand the texture of the place you live in mm-hmm. And how does that become literature? is extremely important, you mm. know. So, uh, it's it's something which which is the it's in a kind of alchemy, mm. you know. And sometimes you don't even know. Like when I wrote *The God of Small Things*, for example, a lot of people accept it as 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 a literary novel, right? Mm. My mother asked me, you know, there was a part in The God of Small Things where Esther and the children are watching their parents fight mm. and saying, you take them, I don't want them, you take them. And they watch their parents grow huge like giants mm. when they fight. So she asked me, how do you remember this? I said, I, I made it up, I don't remember it. <laughs> she said, no, it really happened, you know. So the the... the the, the fiction writer is a ruthless person mm. and must be, mm. you know. So, uh, like I said, the it doesn't matter. Eventually, the truth of something is in the timber, mm. you know. It's in the texture. It's in the tone. Mm. It cannot be, and, and if it's falsified, you'll understand it. And if otherwise, it's good fiction, you know.
1: And the politics and the political back curtain of this book is, you could say another way, would it be possible for the writer Arundhati Roy to write a book that didn't have such a back curtain? Would it? Because it seems to me, uh, Andrea said something, and you have been very addressing this both <laughs> wisely and, and eloquently lately. Uh, that people try to create. a... a a divergence between being a writer and being an activist. So he said, oh, she was a writer, but she's been an activist for 20 years, and now she's a writer again because it says fiction somewhere here. Yeah. And you always said that you don't accept this uh, because you've been a writer all the way, and it's part of your work. And it, In many ways, it seems that this book also mirrors what you've been doing for the past 20 years and all the experiences you have in all the places you've been. Uh, but when you say this, that there is created a niche or a small spot in, in the world that has said this is, is to be a writer. Who creates these limits, these borders around what a writer can be?
0: Well, but people say, you know, she's a, often they say she's a writer activist, and I say, what's that? It sounds like a sofa bed or something. <laughs> what does it mean? Because this word activist is. Such a new word, and I don't know where it came from. You know, In the olden days, writers, that's what writers did. They wrote about the world they lived in. They wrote about it in different ways. They wrote fiction. They wrote non-fiction. So for me, the non-fiction writing of the last uh, 20 years uh, is, is, of course, intrinsically different from the fiction, but it's not not literary to hmm. me hmm. because if you If you say that a a writer's job is is not to comment upon the world that they live in, you're reducing that person to a kind of commodity that mm. we only want you to write something that can be consumed in the mass market and then you live somewhere between literary festivals and bestseller lists you know whereas for example, in India. So, uh, the non-fiction, my non-fiction, it's immediately translated, made into pamphlets, is translated into Hindi, Odia, Marathi, Malayalam, you know, distributed in all kinds of unorthodox ways. It's all freely available on the net. It's not, it's an intervention, you know. Mm. It's an argument. It's a urgent intervention. For mm. 20 years, that's what I've been doing. An urgent intervention... Here and now, in this place where I live. Mm. You know, so I did take a very conscious decision because obviously after the God of Small Things, all the big publications asked me you know, to write for them. I didn't want to become that person who interprets the East to the West. Mm. I wanted to be in, my, in the place I live, mm. living as who I am, doing what I could inside there, fighting the battles in there. And those essays are written with the skills required of a fiction writer. Mm -hmm. Because like when I went to, let's say, the Narmada Valley, where the big dams were being built, millions of people displaced, and and I, I could see that what that struggle needed, brilliant struggle, for years, I mean, incredibly... I learned so much... The, the foundation of my political understanding came from them. Mm. But I could see that the valley needed a storyteller. Mm. It needed somebody to be able to put it down as a story for people to understand something complicated. And I told myself, I remember I said, you wrote a book about a love story. It won the Booker Prize. Everyone is celebrating you. If you're a good writer, write about irrigation, and see if you can make people read it. Mm. And I mm. did, you know? Mm. <laughs> so it was, it was like... Uh, it, it, it took all the skills of a fiction writer. To, and I, when I write those essays, I structure them like I would structure a story. Mm. Not as a journalist or an academic, although you need, you need those empirical facts, and you need that urgency too. But always... I, I know that the reason that they had the impact they had was because it was a fiction writer writing them, mm-hmm. a person who knew to make this into a story, you know? Mm-hmm.
1: This, uh, uh, because we're closing to the end, unfortunately, but uh, the novel ends in many ways in two different places because it ends at one point in the cemetery where the characters meet and also find... As you say, the shattered hearts being pieced together with a little piece of each and one's heart. It becomes a heart and a, and a, and a home and a warm place and a, and a good place for me as a reader to be. But at the same time, outside of the janat, outside of the cemetery, uh, it's a pretty dark novel uh, reading. Uh, you're describing Inja as a patchwork of different... People of languages, of uh, cultures, of history, of decades or centuries, as you say, Feudism li- living next to to global capitalism, next to Facebook, next to all these other things, and and you also take in the Adivites, the uh, indigenous people living in hundreds, millions in in the in the forests, uh, fighting with the Maoists towards the modern India, and what's happening to them and the suppression. <coughs> all this is there, and it seems to me that it's. You're describing a country that is extremely faceted and always have been, but it meets a wave, a political wave of neo-fascism as Hindu nationalism, which has, starts in Gujarat and ends up in the prime minister's office and builds up to wave that hits India. And in one part, actually, it seems like we're almost in the future. We're talking about how this will keep this this wheel will keep turning and changing India uh, into something that sounds scary, scary and extreme. What what kind of India is is developing now? What is happening to India?
0: Well, you know, honestly, it is terrifying what's happening. The fact is that the Prime Minister, many senior ministers who are in government, many senior people in, in the institutions of power, they all belong to an organization, not a political party but an organization called the RSS. The RSS was set up in the 1920s openly along the lines of European fascism. Many of the ideologues say that the Muslims of India are like the Jews of Germany they have always worked towards wanting to declare India a Hindu country, like Pakistan is a Muslim country, to change the constitution of India, which says it's a socialist, secular republic. So the process really started in the 1920s, you know? And there's been a great amount of... Uh, I mean, I would say... Um, there are There are a lot of things that that I would even go to the extent of calling dishonest, intellectually dishonest. You know, uh, for example, I mean, I'm not going to talk about it now, but I've written about it, the role that Gandhi played in all of this and so on. And um, now we are in a stage where the RSS is the most powerful organization in the country. It has hundreds of thousands of volunteers. You know, they all do this kind of military drills, they have their own uh, schools. They are changing the school curriculum everywhere. They have their own publishing. They have their own social work. They, they have worked very, very hard, harder than any other, any other political or ideological formation. You know, so they have. They they now control literally the country and all institutions. So, how it's going to pan out is really hard to say. I mean. Uh, as you as you know, uh, dissidents are being assassinated. Last week, a, a journalist, a woman journalist, was killed, just shot dead. No, you can't blame the RSS for it, but the climate that it has created allows vigilantes to do mm. this kind of thing. And uh, y- you know, but Hindu nationalism went hand in hand with with this new corporate privatization liberalization structural adjustment thing you know so now that that uh, wheel is beginning to collapse because the 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 growth rate which the uh, created this new dynamic economy has now frozen first froze and then began to dive and this new middle class that was full of exhilaration, sitting in a plane waiting to take off, has found the aircraft frozen in midair and the exhilaration is turning into panic. And that is why all this rage on the anti-corruption movements. And the rage kind of expresses itself in all sorts of ways. And one of the ways was the Hindu (laughs) nationalism. But now the, the economy is collapsing so fast that... Uh, you know, Will people see that this was just a, a way of uh, hiding a lot of things or will they, uh, will they turn once more upon the vulnerable? One doesn't mm. know. Uh, it, it's poised at a very terrifying place right now. Uh,
1: I promised you not to talk about martyrdom and other things, but I will <laughs> ask you to comment on one thing. You mentioned a, a woman journalist that was killed, an activist journalist, just a week ago, uh, and there's been a lot of this happening. The fact that many, as you, of the uh, vocal uh, opposition towards this development, this Hindu nationalism, this idea of a unified India under one religion, one rule, one ID, are women, mm. is that makes... Does it make you more provoking the fact that there are women here is is, is gender a part of this as well, or is it well a part?
0: The, it 's the first time actually that a woman was killed <laughs> until then it 's all the assassinations i mean have mm-hmm. been mostly of men and uh, I think you know it 's remarkable really if you look at how how the the movement in the anti dam movement, fifty percent of the armed guerrillas in the mm-hmm. forest somehow are women. Mm-hmm. Um, many, many senior lawyers, activists, are women. It's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a wonderful statement in some ways about women in a country where, of course, millions of female fetuses are being destroyed and female infanticide exists and female malnutrition much more than men, male. But, uh, you know, I mean, all of us know that we are operating in a difficult climate. So, you know, there are thousands of people who are indigenous people, activists, rural activists, small-town journalists who are in jail, no lawyers, no help, no charges. They just held, you know. So it's a, it's a, it's a country where it's a democracy for the elite and then there's no democracy for the rest. And yet, obviously, people participate wholeheartedly in elections, because it's the only place they have. But democracy, if it only means elections and nothing else, becomes majoritarianism, you know.
1: This, injure you have described in in the Ministry of Utmost Happiness, and you've done it, as you stated, and I totally uh, agree with you, not in the form of uh, uh, a a kind of political program or in any way, uh, not even agitating because you're describing more than taking a position you are showing us the, all the parts of this inja of this development but there is one place and you also quoted it in the film where you give something as a if not a disclaimer more kind of a, a paragraph or, or aim for the novel and you say how to tell a shattered story uh, by becoming everybody slowly
0: becoming everybody
1: no no By slowly slowly becoming becoming everything, Everything. it's a wonderful sentence, uh, and it's put out as a poem towards the end of a book. Uh, But how? How do you become everything?
0: Well, uh, you—I suppose it's a form of shamanism. Mm? You know, it's a—it's a form of leaving your body and dancing through other worlds, you know, and taking in the pleasure and the pain of that, I, I suppose it's the very, very essence of fiction and literature, mm-hmm. you know, That that, uh, that is the beauty for me, which is why people ask me, when I talk about politics and novels and everything, I will ultimately say that to me, a novel is a song and a prayer and nothing utilitarian. You know, mm-hmm. so it's not that you have some manifesto and you're animating the characters to, to towards some end, but that you just uh, immerse yourself in a world and you sometimes... Uh, it's a dangerous activity, I mean, to me, writing Garson Hobart was dangerous, mm. you know, because yeah. you're swimming very close to 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 the edge of mm. sanity because you're being somebody you' you're you're being in sympathy with somebody who uh, you would not normally be in sympathy with, and yet it's so important mm-hmm. to see him with compassion too, mm. as I'm the major who. Is a is a killer in the army, Uh, you know. He's also a person created by the system that allows him that impunity, that rewards him for his crimes. You Hmm. know. Hmm. So, yeah.
1: Could you, uh, the writer Arundhati Roy, could you end this by reading a small piece? Yes, yes, yes.
0: The last. uh, I'll read. I'm going to read uh, uh, about Tilothama. Mm -hmm. So it's a chapter called The Tenant. The spotted owlet on the street light ducked and bobbed with the delicacy and immaculate manners of a Japanese businessman. He had an unobstructed view through the window of the small bare room and the odd bare woman on the bed. She had an unobstructed view of him, too. Some nights, she bobbed back and said, moshi, moshi, which was all the Japanese she knew. Even indoors, the walls radiated a bullying, unyielding heat. The slow ceiling fan stirred the scorched air, layering it with fine, cindery dust. The room showed signs of celebration. The balloons tied to the window grill bumped into each other desultorily, softened and shriveled by the heat. In the center, on a low painted stool, was a cake with bright strawberry icing and sugar flowers, a candle with a charred wick, a matchbox, and a few used matchsticks. On the cake, it said, happy birthday, Miss Jibin. The cake had been cut a small piece eaten. The icing had melted and dribbled onto the silver foil-covered cardboard cake base. Ants were making off with crumbs larger than themselves. Black ants, pink crumbs. The baby whose birthday and... This is the baby that was stolen from the pavement. The baby whose birthday and baptism ceremonies had been simultaneously celebrated and successfully concluded was fast asleep. Her kidnapper, who went by the name of S. Tilottama, was awake and concentrating. She could hear her hair growing. It sounded like something crumbling, a burnt thing crumbling. Coal, toast, moths crisped on a light bulb. She remembered reading somewhere that even after people died, their hair and nails kept growing like starlight traveling through the universe long after the stars themselves had died. Like cities, fizzy, effervescent, simulating the illusion of life while the planet they had plundered died around them. She thought of the city at night, of cities at night, discarded constellations of old stars fallen from the sky, rearranged on earth in patterns and pathways and towers, invaded by weevils that have learned to walk upright. Weevils are those little insects in rice that you find. A weevil philosopher with a grave manner and a sharp mustache was teaching a class, reading aloud from a book. Admiring young weevils, strained to catch each word that spilled from his wise weevil lips. Nietzsche believed that if pity were to become the core of ethics, Misery would become contagious and happiness an object of suspicion. The youngsters scratched away on their little notepads. Schopenhauer, on the other hand, believed that pity is and ought to be the supreme weevil virtue. But long before them, Socrates asked the key question, why should we be moral? He had lost a leg in weevil World War IV, this professor, and carried a cane. His remaining five legs were in excellent condition. Airbrush graffiti sprayed on the back wall of his classroom said, evil weevils always make the cut. Other creatures crowded into the already crowded classroom. An alligator with a human skin purse, a grasshopper with good intentions, a fish on a fast, a fox with a flag, a maggot with a manifesto, a neocon newt, an icon iguana, a communist cow, an owl with an alternative, a lizard on TV. Hello and welcome. You're watching Lizard News at 9. There's been a blizzard on Lizard Island. (laughs) The baby was the beginning of something. This much the kidnapper knew. Her bones had whispered this to her that night, the said night the concerned night, the aforementioned night, the night hereinafter referred to as the night, when she made her move on the pavement. And her bones were nothing if not reliable informants. The baby was Miss Jubeen returned. Returned, that is, not to her. Miss Jubeen I was never hers, but to the world. Miss Jubeen II When she was grown to be a lady, would settle accounts and square the books. Miss Jabeen would turn the tide. There was hope yet for the evil, weevil world. Thank you. been listening to Lit House, the English language podcast from the House of Literature in Oslo, Litteraturhuset. Music by Apothek.